millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. Once again, I'm Damon, and this is episode 60, The Council and the Tsar's Daughter. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so last time out we witnessed the downfall of the prince, Alexander Menshikov, the rise of the Dolgoruki family, and the Russian government almost coming to a complete standstill, whilst the Tsar, the 13-year-old Peter II, was busy having a good time. One of Peter the Great's daughters, Anna, unfortunately died not long after giving birth to her son, Charles Peter Ulrich of Schleswig-Holstein-Gottorp, and he'll be one to note for the future. The other daughter, Elizabeth, who was supported by André Osterman, was back in circulation after her planned wedding fell through when her fiancé died, just a couple of days before the ceremony. And Anna, Ivan V's daughter, was still running things up in Courland. I ended things with a couple of statements or questions. Could the Tsar and the council knuckle down and get their acts together? And would young Peter get engaged to someone? Anyone? So this week, I'll hopefully be able to provide the answers to those questions, which I suppose would be slightly strange if I couldn't or didn't, seeing as how I asked them in the first place. And you'll be pleased to know that there is some other stuff to cover, as hinted at in the episode title, but I'll be letting you know all about that when we get there. Before we start, though, I'd like to welcome the following Patreon subscribers to the Boyarduma, John Mosser, Joe Culver and David Bleeden. And if you want to join them and get members-only episodes, and we've just started a mini-series on Siberia, early access to general release episodes and written transcripts, and you can in one of two ways. You can go to the podcast website, historyofrussia.net, and just click on the membership page or the Patreon logo on the homepage. Or you can simply go to patreon.com forward stroke history of Russia. Okay, that's intro time finished. Let's crack on and do some history of Russia. So, it's 1729, and we'll start with the easier of the two questions. Did Peter and the Dolgorukis get their acts together and start to actually govern the country? And the simple answer is no, they didn't, and that was for two reasons. One, they didn't really appear to see it as a priority, and two, everyone was obsessed with getting Peter engaged and then married off. Osterman was trying to get the Tsar to marry his aunt, Elizabeth Petrovna. That's the Tsar's aunt and not Osterman's. Alexei Dolgoruki and his bunch were trying to get Peter to marry Alexei's daughter, the 16-year-old Yekaterina Dolgorukova. However, if you were thinking that Moscow had suddenly become a hotbed of romance or courtly love, 
think again. This was power politics, pure and simple. Both sides were using the Menshikov playbook, and the stakes couldn't have been higher. Osterman wanted the Tsar to marry Elizabeth, who was now 20, to a. unite the two strands of Peter the Great's family, b. control the young Tsar, and c. get the Russian state moving again. The Dolgorukis wanted more or less the same thing, but were more concerned with controlling Peter and strengthening their own position, and less concerned, as we know, with how the apparatus of the Russian state was functioning. Round one went to Osterman. Ivan Dolgoruki fell ill, and his replacement as the Tsar's hunting companion-in-chief, a guards officer named Alexander Buterlin, who, incidentally, was part of Team Osterman, managed to gain some influence over the Tsar and steer him away from Yekaterina Dolgorukova and towards Elizabeth. But then Ivan Dolgoruki's condition worsened and Peter rushed to his old friend's side. Buterlin and Elizabeth were sidelined, and, even worse for Osterman, became romantically attached. And when Peter found out, he became jealous and then angry, and Buterlin was transferred well away from Moscow. But the road was now open for the Dolgorukis, and within a few weeks, the feckless Peter was hopelessly in love with Yekaterina. The problem was, honestly, this is getting tiresome, that she wasn't in love with the Tsar. Andrei Dolgoruki persuaded his daughter that this wasn't going to be a problem, was it? And before she had time to come up with a reason as to why it was going to be a problem, her betrothal to Peter was publicly announced, and the wedding date was set for January the 30th, 1730. The Dolgorukis had won. In mid-January, Peter inspected the troops in the freezing cold. You probably know where this is going. And the next day, complained of a headache. A couple of days later, Peter had fallen seriously ill and had developed a rash. It was smallpox. Smallpox, which has now been eradicated, was in the early 18th century a serious viral disease with no known cure. The best that could be hoped for was a full recovery and mild scarring from the pockmarks. The worst outcome was death, which happened in around 30% of the cases. Osterman rushed to the Tsar's side, but there was nothing he or anyone else could do, and in the early hours, on the morning of his wedding day, Peter died. Immediately after the Tsar's death, although some sources suggest it was in the days leading up to it, Ivan Dolgoruki seized the moment and announced that his sister Yekaterina was the new Empress of Russia. But everyone, including Yekaterina herself, knew that this was pushing things. Osterman, realising that things were going to get messy, conveniently fell ill, which left the remainder of the Privy Council to discuss the situation and then decide who was going to be the next Emperor or Empress. Russia's fate was effectively in the hands of seven people. Gavriil Golovkin, Dmitry Golitsyn and his brother Mikhail, and the Dolgorukis, Ivan, Alexei and the two Vasilis. And who was in the frame to become Russia's new leader? Well, there were six candidates. Well, there would be seven, but we'll get to that in a minute or two. 
So first off, there was the aforementioned Yekaterina Dolkarugova, who was still her family's top choice, even though their initial attempt to name her as Peter's successor had received a less than lukewarm response. There was Elizabeth Petrovna, Peter the Great's only surviving daughter, and Charles Peter Ulrich, Peter the Great's only surviving grandson. And then there were the three surviving daughters of Ivan V, the Ivanovnas, Yekaterina, Anna and Praskovia. Hang on a minute though, didn't Peter II have an elder sister? Why isn't she included? Well, yes you're right, he did, Natalia, but unfortunately she had died of tuberculosis back in 1728, and I forgot to mention that in the last episode. Alexei, Ivan and Vasily Dolgoruki again pressed the case for Yekaterina as empress and backed this up with a copy of what they said was Peter II's will, which would later be found out to be a forgery and would, in the fullness of time, come back to haunt them. However, the other Vasily, the marshal, made it clear that he wanted nothing to do with his family's harebrained scheme and Golovkin and the Galitsins also refused to play ball with all three stating that the next ruler should come from the Romanov family. Begrudgingly, the three Dolgorukis accepted that they were overruled, and that Yekaterina, as empress, was a no-go. Discussion moved on to the case for Elizabeth Petrovna, but the old issue around her illegitimate birth was brought up again, and anyway, Elizabeth herself let it be known that she really wasn't interested and she would later admit that she thought at the time that she was too young. Young Charles Peter Ulrich's candidacy was dismissed too young, and anyway his father was foreign, and so that just left the three daughters of Ivan V. But then, in a surprise move, another candidate came forward and threw her hat into the ring, our old friend Eudoxia. Now why she came forward is a bit of a mystery but it was probably for reasons of security. She'd suffered at the hands of her husband and his second wife when they were in charge, and what better way to stop it from happening again than being the actual person in charge? But she was too old, and nobody on the Privy Council took her claim seriously. The eldest of Tsar Ivan's three surviving daughters, Yekaterina, also fell at the last hurdle, because she too had a potentially difficult-to-control foreign husband, Karl Leopold, the Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, even though the couple were actually separated. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Next on the list was Anna Ivanovna, Duchess of Courland, and she ticked a number of boxes. Well, three in fact. Number one, she was a Romanov. Number two, there was no foreign husband. In fact, no husband at all. And number three, and most importantly, she would or should be easy to, to control. She knew very little of the Russian political scene, and she didn't have a faction or a power base. Yes, 
and that would do very nicely. Very nicely indeed. And Praskovia, the youngest sister, therefore was surplus to requirements. Just to make absolutely sure though, the council agreed amongst themselves that if Anna was to become the next ruler of Russia, then there should be certain conditions attached that she would have to sign off on. And these were, number one, Anna was to govern, but the council would make the decisions. Two, she would not be allowed to declare war or arrange peace treaties if the council had decided that war was necessary. Number three, she couldn't impose new taxes or take financial decisions. Number four, she wouldn't be able to punish the nobility without holding a fair trial. Number five, the empress would not be allowed to marry, decide an heir, appoint officials or promote anyone without permission from the council. And finally, number six, if she did do any of the above, she would be stripped of her titles and forced to abdicate. With these conditions, the council was effectively putting in place a constitutional monarchy, with the empress as a figurehead and with themselves holding all of the cards. But Golovkin, the Golitsins and the Dolgorukis weren't doing this on the basis of some kind of enlightened or liberal mindset or ideology, nor were they using the British model of constitutional monarchy as a precedent, and neither were their actions related to any concerns for Russia or its citizens. This was purely and simply a power grab by the seven councillors. As soon as a decision had been taken, Mikhail Golitsyn and Vasily, not the Marshal Dolgoruki, were sent up to Kurland to get Anna's signature. But walls have ears, and palace walls have many ears, and by the time that Golitsyn and Dolgoruki were en route to Kurland, the cat was out of the bag, and support for Anna to rule without the council was seemingly growing. Now there are various different interpretations as to what exactly happened next and the timing of events and what Anna either knew or didn't know by the time that the two councillors arrived in Mittal, Korland's capital. Either way, she accepted the conditions and signed the document. So either she knew nothing and was pleased to sign, after all, even with the conditions, she would still be the empress. Or, word had reached her about what the council were proposing, prior to Galitsyn and Dolgoruki arriving, and she signed knowing that with the support of friends in high places, things potentially could and would be changed. It's a difficult one to fathom. Anna wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, but neither was she a complete fool. I'm just about erring on the side that she knew, but whether she did or didn't, she was, for the time being, the Empress, and she was on her way to Moscow. Anyway, while she meanders down to the capital, let's take a quick glimpse at who her friends in high places were. There was her elder sister, of course, Ekaterina. Then you had Andrei Osterman, who was still keeping a low profile after his recent pretend illness and who, to all intents and purposes, had slipped beneath the radar. Then there was Alexei Sherkaski, a staunch opponent of the Galitsins and the Dolgorukis, and reputedly, since Menchikov's death, the richest man in Russia, in terms of the amount of serfs that he owned. And finally, there was Anna's chief advisor, and latest paramour, Ernst Biron, 
Biron had many faults and perhaps wasn't the best of choices as an empress's lover. He was married to one of Anna's ladies-in-waiting, and he was rough, coarse, and poorly educated. On the plus side, however, he was a shrewd and able administrator. So, could these four, on their own, provide the support and backbone that Anna was going to need? Probably not, was the answer, but that wasn't actually a problem, because Osterman and Sherkaski had not just pledged their individual support, they'd managed to get the one group of people who were always needed in situations such as these on side. The Preobrazhensky Guards. By late February 1730, Anna and her entourage had arrived in Moscow, now armed almost certainly with the knowledge that she had enough support to rule without the Supreme Council's conditions. And on the 25th, in the Kremlin, a charade was enacted. In attendance were, in the red corner, Anna, Biron, Osterman, Sherkaski, and the guard's commanders. In the blue corner stood the unsuspecting Supreme Privy Councillors. This, they must have thought, was their moment. Except it wasn't. Sherkaski, flanked by guards, strode forward, bowed to the Empress and then loudly requested that she rule over Russia without conditions as Empress and Autocrat. Anna feigned surprise and then asked him to explain, which he did, confirming that she had the required support to rule alone. Vasily, not the marshal, Dolgoruki, tried to interrupt, but Anna ignored him and said something along the lines of, well, if that's the case, we shan't be needing this, and then proceeded to rip up the council's document to loud cheers from the hundreds of guards who had suddenly, and on cue, filled the room. Well, that's one version of events. In another, there was no public theatre. Just Anna, or Osterman, or the guards, quietly and firmly making it known to the council that they were no longer required. And a few days later, the Supreme Privy Council was abolished. It had lasted five years, and had achieved next to nothing. But what was to become of its members? Well, Gavriel Golovkin, the quietest and least radical, was kept on as a minister in the new regime. Dmitry Galitsyn was bundled off into retirement, stroke house arrest, and we'll meet him again later in Anna's reign. Same thing for Mikhail Galitsyn, retired off and later in the year he would die. Marshal Vasily Dolgoruki was spared any punishment for the time being, but the rest of the family, the other Vasily, Alexei, Ivan and Yekaterina, were all banished and exiled either to Siberia or the far northern wastes. In early May 1730, Anna was crowned empress, and after more than 30 years in the wilderness, the Miloslavsky Romanovs were back. In her palace, though, sat another Tsar's daughter, the popular, beautiful and clever Elizabeth Petrovna, who, like her namesake Elizabeth I of England when her sister Mary Tudor was queen, would have to tread carefully, because Anna would be watching, and she would be watching very, very closely indeed. OK, that's where we'll leave things for this week. Next time we'll be taking a look at Anna's early life, her initial period as empress and the day-to-day -day goings on at court. 
the latter of which could be summed up as bizarre, cruel, and dark. Oh, and if there's time, we'd also sneak a quick peek at the European political scene. So, until then, dear listeners, look after yourselves, stay safe, and here's a new one for you, keep on keeping on. <laughs> <laughs>